put a, a bookmark or put a ribbon down on Daniel chapter 5. We'll come back there in a few weeks, but we're going to take a small, small break these next few weeks and go through a sermon series or go through a series on this, this time that's on the church calendar that we call Advent. The word itself, Advent, is just a way to convey the arrival of something that you've been excited for, the, 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 the coming or the, the arrival of something huge and important, which of course we as Christians claim about the arrival of Jesus by being born fully human. We're going to see through a few different men that, that preach up here, through, through our Advent readings, through, through our worship, and really through our liturgy overall, that you know, while, while this season might be a little bit more focused on the birth of Christ than, than maybe we do at other times of year, I, I really hope that what we do this season, this coming month, is what we do every Sunday. I mean, I, I hope that churches like this one are just as laser-focused on who Jesus is this week as they are every other week, proclaiming the, the incredible truths of God becoming man, of God living among men, of God dying at the hands of men, and God raising up victorious over sin and death, and God ascending back into heaven in order to restore man. But as you could tell from our Advent reading earlier in the service, our, our theme this week is joy. You know, our order might differ just a little bit from other churches or what you might be used to. You know, we might feel those pangs of tradition or, you know, maybe I'm putting in quotes, doing it the right way. But I hope you feel that, you know, we as a church are not bound by Scripture in this observance in the same way that we are with something we would say like, you know, communion or baptism. We believe it's a good, tangible way to remember, but we also have the freedom to kind of contextualize and make it fit best for this situation. So with that in mind, the elders were discussing, and we said, we want to start this with joy. I mean, it's so easy to feel like joy has been in short supply worldwide for the past couple of years. And, and I mean, we can just be blunt and honest the past few months here, it's been hard to find joy. And that's, that's okay to admit. That, that's okay to, to be at that point. Uh, but, you know, it, whether it's here, whether it's in our church over in Clean, whether it's really anywhere, the, the question is, how can you be genuinely happy about anything these days? You know, with all the violence, sickness, hatred, division, and hard-heartedness we encounter on like a Tuesday morning. I mean, it, it's just something that we encounter all the time. But, but the answer is simple. It's the Sunday school answer. We have Jesus Christ as our source of joy. More than anything that tries to pull us back into the very real pains and sins of the world, we cling to a Savior who is infinitely more beautiful and real and hopeful and joy-inducing than anything else we could try to find. Just like the writing said earlier, Jesus is our greatest source of joy, which is why we place our hope in him. Like I said, our text this morning comes from the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, which is often called the prologue to his gospel. This is one of the richest passages in all of Scripture. And I would go so far as to say that if you're wanting to know who Jesus is, this is one of the texts that you have to come to and reckon with and work through. I'm calling the sermon today, God in the Flesh, which you're probably thinking, man, that was a real stretch there, right? That's pretty clear if, you just, if your eyes just scan the, the title of the, you know, maybe the section that you have in Scripture or the, the first few verses, right? But think about it. Of course Jesus is God in the flesh. We're, we're going to see that some things that we understand or, or, and think are really clear or understandable actually require some deep reflection and, and some deep working through. That's why I love the, the saying of Augustine when he talked about the Gospel of John, when he said that it's shallow enough for a child to be able to swim in, and yet it's deep enough, or it's child shallow enough for a child not to drown in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to be able to swim in. Think about that. If you read more of John's gospel, which I'm going to encourage 
anyone, if you're not in a Bible reading plan or if you're not reading the Scriptures consistently, don't wait till January 1st. Start now. Let's go through the, the Gospel of John uh, during this time of Advent. But it, you're going to see that there's lots of stories that you're probably really familiar with, but whose deepest meanings we could spend a lifetime exploring. And today we're going to see that there are two things that Scripture seems to paint as you know, inseparable, or, you know, separated and, and impossible to join together, a, a divine and a human nature, and yet somehow they come together in the person of Jesus. And then we're going to see that for God's people, there's only one really real path of response for who Jesus is. It's to respond in worship. And, and as a part of that worship, it's to proclaim him to the rest of the world for all to hear. Our Savior is God in the flesh. What an incredible truth. What great news of great joy. But before we go any further, before we get built up, worked up too much, let's spend a moment in prayer uh, for our time this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We, we, we just left this season, this moment of, of being thankful or offering thanksgiving, and, and we know that um, all good things come from you, and, and just, just like family and friends and, and meals and, and feasting, um, God, we, we also want to thank you for this time, the, the time that you, you call your people back together and you give us truly uh, important and deep things to be thankful for. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he is God in the flesh and that we get to spend several weeks learning about and getting excited for the arrival of Jesus. God, I pray, as I do all, all the time, just remove me from this process. Let your spirit come and speak powerfully to your people about your son. We're, we're so excited to see what you will do in our hearts today. And let us leave today just a little bit more in love with you than when we started. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John 1, verses 1 to 18. It's some of the deepest, most foundational theology we encounter in any of the Gospels. Any of the three sections that we're going to see this morning really deserve a sermon in and of themselves. So I'm going to leave a lot more on the table that needs to be discussed. We hope to merely see some of the largest and most important themes or points that the Apostle John makes here. But with that in mind, what do we hope to accomplish? Well, each of my points like each of the sections of this text, is centered on the person of Jesus. And our first section here is a simple question everyone has to ask at some point. Who is Jesus? We can only start to think through what the Bible says about what he has done for us or what it means to be in relationship with Christ when we first answer the question, who is Jesus? So let's pick up start and start reading in verse 1 of the Gospel of John. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, where do we start with this? All right, let's just do a little bit of observation off of the top. When we ask the question, who is Jesus, we, we have some data that we kind of have to assemble here together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think we've got a slide here. We're going to break that sentence into three statements or three clauses where you know most of our uh, texts have commas that separate them. We're going to start at the second and third clause, and then we're going to cycle back to the first. So let's look at the, the second one first. The, the Word was with God. I'm going to give you a little bit of an answer beforehand so there's no confusion. Jesus is the word here. We're going to see that throughout this text, but I can promise you they're, they're writing about Jesus here. 
but it says with God. With God means that there's some sort of, you know, some sort of separate relationship or maybe even independence or, or distinction. There's some level of association between the two, but we need to know a little bit more about how John is using these terms before we make too much of it. And, and the reason we need to know a little more is that you know, in a very Jewish setting where the presumption is that there's only one God from what God says in, in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, this statement on its own might lead a reasonable person to assume that the Word, while existing alongside God, was somehow inferior or somehow dependent upon God. But that thought can only last as long or as much time as it takes to read the next clause, the third clause, the Word was God. The Word, which was just described as being with God, is now called God Himself. If I was teaching my children, I would say, everyone, everyone look at my eyes when I say this so they know that this is important. What John says here is that Jesus is God, and yet He's distinct from the single God we might have thought existed before. He's just as powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-righteous as God Himself. Guess what? Because He is God Himself. And if, these, if this is true, these are world-altering statements. Within one divine nature, one divine essence, we have two individual persons or, or substances. And, and, and how do we know that you know, John means it when he says that this God is not, not somehow a, a newly discovered God or, or an addition to what was already there? Because we go back to the first clause, and, and we see how he wrote this. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus, the Word, God Himself was there in the very beginning. Allow me to get a little nerdy here. He uses the Greek words in archaic, which are precisely the same words that the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses or used whenever they interpreted Genesis 1:1. In archaic, in the beginning, the Word was right there at the initial creative act of history. And if you're worried that somehow we're missing a piece of the Trinity here, guess what happens when we go all the way back and look at the origin story of everything we know? Who do we see? In Genesis 1-2, we see that it's God the Spirit who is the one that is hovering over the waters. There, we've got, we've got Father, we've got Son, and we've got Spirit all present together in the beginning. And yet when God actually starts his work of creation, what does he do? The, the action of creation starts when God speaks which means words come out. The creative word we see in Genesis 1 is the very same word we see in John 1. It's all connected very purposefully. God, or what we see as, as God the Father, and, and the word that he speaks is God the Son. The, the word, the Greek word we use is logos. So when we talk about the word of God, specifically here in the context of John 1.1, we have the speaker, God the Father, we, we have the, the speech or the word, the Son himself, and then we have the breath. Whenever you, whenever you speak a word, you exhale. And guess what the, the words in Greek and Hebrew for, for breath or for wind are? It's the same word that we translate for spirit. So all there together in the original creation story of Genesis and here again, all together in John chapter 1. And so with this idea built from this verse, you can see why John is so comfortable going on and using phrases in the following verses. He was in the beginning with God. And because he was there from the beginning, we also know that all things were made through him. Nothing was created apart from the word, including the word himself. And why do I say that? Well, there's a good likelihood 
that John, at the time that he wrote this gospel, was writing against a certain ideology, a certain separation of the, of the spiritual world and, and, and the physical world that eventually culminated a few hundred years later in this idea called Arianism. I think there are lots of modern-day uh, applications of Arianism as well, and it's a, it's a historic heresy that the church has consistently rejected. What Arianism says is that Jesus is the most important created being in all of creation. I know that sounds like something we would instantly recognize, but if you go look at it, a recent survey, I think it was in Ligonier Ministries, they said over half of professed evangelicals agreed with this statement. They would say that Jesus is the, the most important creation of, or the most important created being in all of creation. But that idea cannot survive this passage. The creator cannot be created. From the very beginning, Jesus was an integral part of the the story, the origin, origin story, the, the creation itself. And since God is the creator, the logic is abundantly clear. If God creates and Jesus creates, then Jesus is God. We can have life in God the Son. We, we can have light in the darkness all because of Jesus, the Word, God himself in the flesh. So as I was preparing this week, I, I was kind of stuck on just how best to illustrate this. How, how can you show that there is so much more that meets the eye when it comes to how we see Jesus. And then I remembered a sermon that uh, an old pastor friend of mine preached a few years ago, and, and he talked about this guy. Hopefully he's up here. Do we have that cool picture? All right, there we go. Does anyone know what that is? Has anyone ever heard of a mantis shrimp? Yeah? Okay, all right. We got some marine biologists in, in training here. I like this. Uh, the mantis shrimp. Well, if you haven't heard of this, prepare to be amazed. Um, the, the eyeballs that you see there, they're kind of sticking out on their own in a weird little way. Those contain the most advanced set of optics that scientists have yet to find in the known created universe. So just for, you know, kind of comparison, our eyeballs have what, are, well, we have three of what are called photoreceptors, three kinds of cells that can receive red, blue, and green light, and then they mix it all up together, and that's how we get our color spectrum. That's how we can see different kinds of colors, but not this guy. Each eyeball that the mantis shrimp has has a minimum of 12 photoreceptors, up to 16, and they think that there are some species that might have 20 different photoreceptors, which means our brains literally cannot comprehend how things look through this animal's eyes. All sorts of lights and, and colors on spectrums that are invisible to us are as clear as day to this underwater creature. And in a very small analogy of what we do when we study the, the nature and the person of Jesus, we need to realize that our current ability to see Jesus has certain limits. You know, there's only so much that we can know of Jesus right now. We understand that Jesus is exactly who Scripture says he is, just like the Father and the Son are exactly who the Bible says, says they are. We have enough knowledge of God through Scripture to know him in a saving and, and close and, and relational manner. But when we see God face to face, either after our time on earth is complete or, or when Jesus comes to rule again, it's going to be so much better. I mean, we're, we're going from, from three spectrums to, to 12 to 20 to something just much more than we can even comprehend right now. God is exactly who the Bible says he is, and yet there's so much more for us to, to learn and grow in and experience. That's why in, in our setting today, we, we need to be people who, who take the surface level understanding of God and then continue to do the work of understanding and learning and, and growing in knowledge of him well. Academic types call this, this type of work theology proper. 
You know, all that means is just plumbing the depths of God himself. But this isn't an academic discipline. This isn't something that's meant to be at a seminary. This is something that you and I and everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord should be engaged in. We're, we're to study things like the unity of God and yet the distinction of three different persons. We need, we need to be willing to ask and, and try to answer the big questions about Jesus, the, the union of two natures in one person. And, and our authoritative source, our, our place of study, ultimately must be here. It must be contained within the written revelation of God. We must be willing to, to listen and study and learn from others, but always test everything we encounter, especially ideas about who God is, who Jesus is, and what God has given us specifically so that we may know him. When we start there, we're starting to do that work and, and hopefully finding the joy that comes in knowing who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh. So in a way much better than I ever could, the Apostle John has established exactly who Jesus is. He, he is God himself, and yet he is distinct from the Father. But the question then becomes, you know, what exactly is this, this person, this word, capable of doing? We have an idea of the who, but now we need to try to work through the what. So the second section is simple. What did Jesus do? Let's read starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I'm going to pause there real quick. So we've got a quick aside on the testimony of John. And don't get confused. This is not the same John that wrote this. This is John the Baptist that he's speaking about here. And his work is as a witness to Christ. But, but the main thing I want you to see is that there is a specific purpose and a specific mission to the, to the word coming into the world. And that this coming into the world in a new, unique way, it did not happen in some sort of vacuum. This has been predicted long beforehand. If you've ever read any significant amount of the Old Testament, you'll see time and time again that there is just this big idea, that this, this longing, this looking forward to a Savior, a salvific figure, someone to redeem Israel from its sins. Just in our first few studies in, in the book of Daniel, we've seen Jesus pointed to as a cornerstone, one that Christians build their entire life upon, and yet for those who reject him, it's something that will crush them. God's covenant people have been waiting for over 400 years since the last bit of Old Testament scripture has been written. And who have they been waiting for? They've been waiting for Jesus. But then it doesn't go according to plan, or at least to Israel's plan. Let's read in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is meant to be the bad news before we get to the good news. Israel had their chance. Their Savior came from among their own people, and they missed him entirely. Rather, rather than drawing close to him and paying attention to and worshiping Jesus, they rejected him. They cast him out. They hated him. Later on, we're going to see that they even go so far as to murder him. And what is this? This is a kind of expansion or even an escalation of the idea of Israel rejecting God that pervades so much of the Old Testament. And in a weird, hard right kind of tangent to explain this or maybe picture this, does anyone here know who Mick Jagger is? 
Okay, Any, hopefully a couple. Okay, well, if not, I think we got a picture of him. It's kind of low lighting up here. If you don't know who he is, he's the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, right? Rolling Stones, okay. One of the most famous rock bands of the last 50 years or so. Uh, and this is a picture that he took uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, about six weeks ago, at a bar in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and so obviously this starts to get a little bit of, you know, gra- or, you know, little traction. People are saying, oh my gosh, this guy was here. But guess what? The, the owners of the bar had no idea he was coming in. The, the, the people that run it had, had no preparation for him. And so when they go back and look at the security footage, they realize that he walks in, he grabs a drink, he hangs out for a few minutes, and then he leaves. They had no idea that one of the most famous musicians alive was among their midst. He just, he just gra- had some time and then left, unnoticed by a bunch of people who otherwise probably would have been falling over themselves to try to get a picture with him just had they known who it was. But that was a crowd that wasn't expecting this celebrity. What if they had been anxiously awaiting him? Or, or what, if they, what if he had, was supposed to perform there and yet they still missed him in their presence? That would have been even more insane, more dramatic, right? How crazy would it be to have all this anticipation for someone, have them come among your midst, and yet never see them and watch them pass by? That's what Israel did. They're constantly looking and waiting and hoping for a Messiah, and yet they missed the Messiah as he came from their own ranks, their own ethnic and cultural background. They missed out seeing on what they missed out on seeing what Jesus did because they were too busy looking for someone more impressive out on the horizon to save them. But that's one side of the coin, and definitely the negative side. That's the bad news. The other side of this section is what, and this other side of what Jesus did is much more positive. Uh, Let's read verses 12 to 14. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first side of that that coin was the story of of God being rejected by Israel, by his own people. But we see the covenant people of God, before Jesus' arrival, are just as prone to to worldliness and rejecting God as, as anyone else. But for those who, in fact, did receive him, who believed in his name, there's something much more radical that happens here. They're changed. They're born again. They're adopted into the family of God. They're able to be called sons and daughters of the Father. And they can look at other sinners in a new and beautiful way as other new creations, as brothers and sisters united in Christ. And those people get to rejoice in the culminating truth from this passage. God is in all of his glory, dwelling among his people once again. John 1.14 is one of my two or three favorite verses in all of Scripture. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. There's so much to unpack just in this verse, but let me try this. Our small group over at, at Grace uh, just finished up a 12-week study going through the book of Exodus. And, and the climax of that story, the last few verses in Exodus chapter 40 are, are the story that's just simple and yet earth-shaking. The glory of God comes into the tabernacle and dwells among the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where it gets fun. The tabernacle was an ohel, was a tent. And guess what the Greek word for dwell is here? It's the verbal form of the Greek word skene, which is a tent. 
Saying that he dwelt among us is saying that he set his tent up among his people. It's saying that he is the true and greater tabernacle, that Jesus is the way that God's glory is now visible for all of us to see. The work of Jesus, which began at the incarnation, is to reestablish the presence of the glory of God among his people. And that work begins by the word which becomes flesh. When we say that Jesus is God the Son incarnate, That word incarnate is simply our big idea today. Jesus is God in the flesh, whose mission is to dwell among his people and eventually die in their place for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of a sinful people to a holy God. When reading this text and looking at Israel's rejection of Jesus, I I need to remind myself, and, and I think all of us need to remind ourselves of a simple caution. You know, we, we like to look at that and, and think that we would not have been like the Jews who missed Jesus, and instead we would have had it all figured out. We're somehow smarter or more informed today, right? But that's not the case. I mean, if Jesus came upon the earth for the first time today, we'd probably do the same thing that his own people did here. We'd reject him outright. I mean, that's what the vast majority would do. That, that's the likeliest crowd that you and I would find ourselves were it not for the grace of God. But those who, by the grace of God, were waiting longingly, seeking the will and goodness of God over their own, this would be a moment of true joy, of true rejoicing at the advent of their Savior, their arrival. This would be a cause for joy of those who were born, not of their own will, but of the will of God. You you see these themes that are going to come up in John 3, where you must be born again. The seeds are planted right here in the the first few verses. Look look at Simeon and Anna in in Luke chapter 2 who waited so long, you know, up to, up to seven or eight decades, waiting to see God in the flesh. When they do, they praise him and, and thank God for what they were able to see. When he sees Jesus, Simeon praises God this way. In Luke 2, 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So for us today, the the question is simple. Are we as ready for Jesus today as Simeon and Anna were here? Or are we so busy looking for for cultural relevance or influence or or power in, in our day and age that we forget to look for our Savior? Are we able to see what Jesus did for us by living, dying, and rising again as something more than just a good story in a good book? Do we, do we recognize our own tendency to worship stuff as something as equally worthy of our hope and our joy that, that is meant to be uh, set aside for Jesus alone? The word for believe in verse 12 there conveys this sense of, of functional trust, not, not just mental acceptance of knowledge. So, so do you trust in the work of Jesus on your behalf to be enough to wipe away your sins and help you to be a new creation in the eyes of God? And if you're not there yet, if, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, let me ask you to consider it now, today. Look to God and see what he did in the utterly unique person of Jesus Christ. Look to him for salvation. Look to him for repentance and forgiveness of your sins. Look to him for love. Look to him and what he did for true joy. So this brings us to our last section, which is really kind of a, a huge piece or a huge bit of application for us. You know, hopefully we've had a few of those moments already, but if not, this entire section kind of works as application for us. 
since the other sections are already titled with, uh, with questions, I did the same thing here. And the question is this, what do we do with Jesus? Is knowing Jesus as your Savior the end itself, or is it the means to the end? Well, let's see how John gets after that question right here. In verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, so there are some really cool things to, to see here. The, the, the first is what we have in the parentheses, at least of the, the ESV translation, where he says that he was before me. Now, we've got to remember our context here. John's writing this probably after all the events of Jesus' life ha- have come and gone. He's writing all of this knowing what, what has already happened, what, what's going to follow in this gospel, which means he's very familiar with what happens in John chapter 8. When Jesus shocks everyone by saying that the world-shattering statement of before Abraham was, I am. This is another clear claim that Jesus will make in this gospel that he is God himself. And I can't help but see John using a similar bit of wordplay here, but, you know, because he was before me. Then in verse 17, you have this idea of something coming through one of the titans of the Old Testament. Moses himself, and yet it finds greater fulfillment and purpose in Jesus Christ. It says that the law came through Moses, which is true, and and it's a good thing. The law served many purposes, but at its core, it shows and reveals our desperate need for Christ and the salvation found in him and nowhere else. But this is really neat. The, The words grace and truth have a loose translation connection to the Hebrew terms for everlasting love and faithfulness which is some of the strongest covenant language that God or even his people use when when establishing or firming up or describing the relationship between a covenant God and and his covenant people. So where we see that the law is just one of the results of the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses, we now see that that the true covenant, what, what we call the new covenant, comes through only through the person of Jesus. I think the Apostle Paul does a similar bit of cool wordplay here in Galatians 2. There he's kind of comparing and contrasting what, what, what the law can and cannot do. And he makes the, the, this great statement in Galatians 2.21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, grace, on grace, from Je- grace upon grace from Jesus, for if righteousness were through the law, the law given to Moses, then Christ died for no purpose. That's a strong statement. And then finally, we have verse 18 in our text. John ends his section with a strong statement of the word's divinity, which says the only way to get to God, the only way to see God is through me. That's how you are able to know him. He's going to repeat this in John chapter 14. But he wants you to know at the beginning and at the end of this text exactly who Jesus is. But with that knowledge, how do we respond? What should we do next? Guess what? It's straightforward. We, We take the news of Jesus, and we proclaim it to the world. Gospel is, means nothing more than good news, which means we simply report what has happened to those who do not yet know the good news. And if you aren't sure, look down just a few verses where Jesus makes his first appearance kind of in narrative form in John's gospel. In John one twenty nine, the next day, he, he being John the Baptist, 
saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. The other Gospels make it clear that John's task is to proclaim the arrival of the Lord's presence and look at his reaction when he actually experiences it. It's spontaneous proclamation and adoration. He's saying, behold, this is the one, the Messiah, the the Savior that we've all been waiting for. He's right here. Look at him. To anyone who's looking for salvation, look to Jesus. So what are we to do? We do the very same thing that John did. We proclaim the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. This is engaging in the mission of God here on earth, what is often referred to as the Missio Dei. That means that we do the work and we reason with people who doubt that Jesus was either fully God or fully man. We work through ways that make it seem like Jesus does not fit modern definitions of love or tolerance or truth. And then we pray that the will of God would be to help people be born again into a life that worships and walks with our Lord. Don't be afraid of Jesus. And, and, and if you're trying to share the truth of Jesus with others, don't be afraid to tell others of Jesus. Use your testimony or, or, or use the testimony of Scripture itself to help point people to the Lamb of God. And then from there, let, let the Holy Spirit take it. And you'll be amazed at what happens when He goes to work in our place. I asked the question at the beginning of this section of whether or not knowing Jesus as a Savior is an end or a means to an end. And the truth is that it's not really an either-or answer, but more of a, a both-and. The gospel that saves you is the same one that you need to hear preached here every Sunday, the, the same one that, that should send us out on mission together throughout the week. And in keeping with the theme of this morning, that mission is meant to be an avenue and, and an opportunity to experience joy now, sure, anxiety and uncertainty and fear are normal emotions to fear or to, to feel when it comes to sharing the good news of, or the gospel with other people. But guess what? If Jesus is our ultimate source of joy, it should be joyful work that we give ourselves to. I think an easy way to picture this is, is a physical reminder from the past that's kind of been recently replaced by cell phones. But uh, let's see. Does anyone remember those photo inserts in your wallet? Or maybe a better one, does anyone have those physical photo inserts in their wallet? Okay, good. All right, for those of you that don't know, for you young children that are probably in those wallets somewhere, uh, they were this perfect little place that you could physically put in your wallet or your purse and that you could put printed pictures of your friends or your family or your loved ones. Uh, and so whenever that conversation steered just right, you were able to crack that baby open and start showing off those, those, uh, that family. I think these are extra potent or extra dangerous in the hands of maybe newly minted grandparents because they are ready to show those babies off. Are they right? Okay. Now, what, what, what I'm trying to convey, and I think we have here, yeah, we've got a granddad showing off a picture of his grandchild. Look at the joy that that, that man has in his little granddaughter. This picture was actually taken by that same girl 20 years later who was shocked that her grandfather kept that picture for so long, but it was the joy that he had in her that he wanted to keep and hold on to. But what, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it's easy to show off what you have great joy in. So, so what do we do with Jesus? We look at him in amazement, and, and we find joy in him. And then we go and declare that very same good news that was so important to us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, our theme has been joy. Jesus is our greatest source of joy, 
And the Gospel of John and his prologue here remind us why. How do we find joy first in who Jesus is? Well, we remind ourselves of the depth of our God, and especially in the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man, all at the same time. Our Savior is impossibly great to comprehend fully, and yet he still pursued you and me with everything he had. Where is the joy in, in what Jesus did? It's that he reversed the effects of the fall, where we were cast out from God's presence, and yet he's able to bring us back into the presence of God, and we're able to see God much more fully and much more beautifully than we've ever been able to before. And then finally, what we do with Jesus is to joyfully engage in his mission on earth. We happily share the good news because it's precisely that, good news of great joy. It's not a chore or it's not a task that we do to get extra credit holiness points, but it's the happy labor that Jesus has called us to join him in. This Advent season, I, I pray that because of Jesus, it is a special season to, to you, to your loved ones, to this church, and to this section of the world, this, this part of the world where God has called us to. And that because of that, all of us experience a little more joy. 